Well, holy shit, I actually managed to do it. After procrastinating for ages, I finally managed to produce an audiobook version of the Lunatic Fringe book. It's currently available on all Amazon sites, audible.com, and shortly on iTunes. And if you're the page-turning type, it's also, of course, still available in Kindle form, paperback, and uh, hardback on Amazon. Ten hours and ten years worth of Blue Skies Magazine's articles, all available to you right fucking now, including a few author's notes and even an apology or two. Enjoy. In a world... Mate, hold up. We said we're done with the serious intros. Who's it? Well, we did. I don't remember that. Well, I said it, and you're me, so, you know. Well, I don't care. In a world... Uh, hey, I told you. We're keeping it light. You do it on your own, then. Well, technically, I already am, so... Anyway, fuck yeah, pure wild flight. Get it down, ya. How good? Visit nzaerosports.com. I get to do the next one. Well, obviously, you moron, we both do. Of course. I absolutely love the NZ Aerosports business model. I mean, come on. One glance at an Icarus fuck yeah sticker and you know it lines up perfectly with the fucking pilot mentality. But outside their wonderful use of colorful language and a great company vibe, there's a long list of reasons to say NZ Aerosports fuck yeah. NZ Aerosports blows me away right out of the gate as a canopy manufacturer with a bold offer. They give you 10 jumps on your brand new nylon to decide if you want to keep it swap it out, or even return it for a refund. I mean, seriously, how incredible is that? That's like getting halfway through a prom and deciding you prefer the slightly racier date that goes down faster. Seriously, they do that. If you're not madly in love with your new canopy after 10 jumps, they'll let you swap it out for another size or model, or even get your money back. And the range of canopies they've got? Man, they've got a style canopy to fit every jumper and every situation with models you know and trust like the Sapphire 3, the perfect choice for the beginner or intermediate canopy pilot, the Crossfire 3 when you're ready to kick it up that elliptical notch, the JFX 2 if you're looking to up your new swoop game, the Leia as the workhorse and dirt water dirt beast, or the Petra. The Petra cranks out crazy power and is nothing short of a record breaker. But hey, it's not always about speed either. Take the Kraken. Built as a low pack volume canopy specifically with wingsuiting in mind, she gives you all the performance you're looking for with the reliability you need that'll have you itching for that next formation, rodeo, or puffy cloud. So, the equipment is top-of-the-line kick-ass stuff, as you already know, but how about the team? Well, the customer service gang is there to sort you out whenever you need them. Maddie and Beto are always there to help with Jen holding the reins. They're available for you at sales at nzaerosports.com, and they've got a kick-ass live chat tool on the website if you're wanting to hit someone up right away. These are the crew you're going to want to talk to to get those custom orders in. With the stock nylon, once you know what you want, they'll have that shit on a FedEx truck as soon as the credit card machine says approved and get you in the air in no time. For your custom orders, you'll be able to get a time frame for building and shipping when you design it, so get to it. And demos. They've got demos in the U.S. available from their partner Rock Sky Market. 
The whole U.S. demo fleet is there with Sapphire 3, Crossfire 3, Kraken, JFX2, and Leia canopies in a range of sizes. They also offer student and tandem demos in the U.S. Bottom line, every step of the way, NZ Aerosports is there to get you what you need, and I personally couldn't be happier to be teamed up with them here on Lunatic Fringe. And now, time to get started with Lunatic Fringe Into the Void, brought to you proudly by NZ Aerosports. Fuck yeah! Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go! Back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void, and I'm staring at a face that's got a whole lot of experience and lots of stories to tell, so let's dive straight into it. Tell me, who the fuck are you and what do you do? <laughs> I'm Scotty Mill. I run Active Skydiving, which is a specialist AFF school based in UK, but we don't jump in UK. We take groups abroad every month to train them in the sunshine. I mean, right now here, we're in the bad weather in, in uh, January, February. So uh, we just got back from the first trip of the year to Seville in Southern Spain. We had the most wonderful weather and everybody jumped their buns off. And that's what we're here all about. Boy, that doesn't sound horrible at all. UK skydivers oh. that don't jump in the UK. <laughs> well, UK is great to jump, but to learn, to gain your license, you need the consistency. And I always say to my guys that if it's not, if you don't complete AFF within a week or 10 days, then it's not accelerated learning. To get right. that consistency, we need to go to somewhere with the sunshine, fast airplanes where we have the facilities and we can get the job done. And it, the success rate is incredible. And that, oh, that's it, why we're so successful. It has to be. I mean, I suppose, especially when you're taking someone out of their normal environment where they can kind of escape the whole process and fall back into normal life. If you're going to go to a destination to learn AFF, that's what you're there for. So you're completely immersed in the experience. I mean, that's that's really an amazing way to do it. And also, we've got the guys who are businessmen. If we're training in UK, the phones go in and they're being interrupted and they're being distracted and they've got to make appointments and they've got to get people to do things. When we take them abroad, they can just shut the door. Oh, that's and, fantastic. Uh, concentrate in hand. It is, it is wonderful. Absolutely. Now, before we get too far into how all that came about, I want to jump you all the way back to the beginning, how you got started in not necessarily just skydiving, but in anything that would be considered on the extreme side. Okay. I'm a wee boy who comes from Elgin in the north of Scotland, a little town in the north of Scotland. In fact, Elgin is the capital of Speyside, which is some of the finest whiskey in the world. Um, <laughs> That's where I come from. As a young boy, two things I wanted to do. I wanted to jump out of airplanes and I wanted to be a soldier. So at the earliest opportunity, I left school, joined the army and uh, trained to be a paratrooper. Wow. While I, while I was in training, I saw the Red Devils, the army parachute team, make a display. I didn't know about freefall, knew very little. This is 1967. Oh, wow. So, um, I watched these guys jumping and I thought, that is absolutely fantastic. So that's what I want to do when I grow up. And as I went through training, we got the opportunity to make a couple of um, sports static line jumps because that's all there was in 1969. Mm. So on the same day that Neil Armstrong landed on the moon 
I climbed out onto the wing of a de Havilland Rapide biplane, got a tap in the ribs and stepped off. Now, <laughs> at that time, we had B4 backpacks with C9 double L canopies and big, heavy everything. And what we did was we tied the static line to the back of the container and inside the container was a spring-loaded pilot chute. So when the brake ties break, the pilot chute springs out and the parachute deploys. Well, my static line broke, but the pilot chute didn't come out. And my first jump was a total malfunction. And everyone thought that would be the end of me. I thought it was the most wonderful experience. Uh, landing in an I-24 reserve wasn't particularly my favorite landing, but, uh, but it didn't put me off. And, uh, and I was sold from that day. Before we go on, I have to say, I've never forgiven Neil Armstrong for stealing my thunder because nobody, nobody wanted to hear about my giant leap for mankind that day. Yeah, he did kind of upstage you a little bit. Yeah. Just a little bit. You know, it's it's kind of funny. Uh, um, I, uh, I was 20 days old when you made your first jump. Um, and I know that specifically because I was a huge face, uh, fan of the the space program and and uh, know a fair amount about the Apollo space program and and so I I I still tell my to this day tell my mom that I remember watching Neil Armstrong land. So now I get to say I remember watching Neil Armstrong land and I remember remember that time Scotty made his first jump. <laughs> it's, a, it's a kind of well-known fact in UK skydiving. You know, every time the anniversary comes up, I get all these messages saying, "Yo, yet another year, so fifty-three years." And that's amazing. Now, you, you said that uh, you grew up knowing you always wanted to jump out of an airplane. What was it that sparked that interest? I mean, because if we're talking in the the late fifties and early sixties, there wasn't a lot of uh, exposure to skydiving. No, not at all. Not skydiving at all. It was all military because, mm. like I say, I had this great interest in becoming a soldier mm. and uh, loved the war films and I loved the movies and paratroopers just looked the most exciting dudes in the world. And and um, that's what sold me on on uh, on it. Sure. Well, and and I would suppose, especially being in Europe, paratroopers had to have had a, a bit of a special place. Uh, they were so high profile in, in World War II and so instrumental in the success of World War II. Mm. Mm. So, yes, they absolutely were. We follow that history. Oh, absolutely. So you, you join the military at a young age and you go straight to go into uh, paratrooping and you have a total malfunction on jump number one. I mean, absolutely. How do you follow that up? I mean, uh, clearly you continue <laughs> jumping. <laughs> well, they wanted to send me home, and I said, "No, no, it's still good daylight. Get me back in that airplane. I want to go again." And uh, and I made the second jump that day, and and that was terrific. And I was absolutely sold. That was just, and from that time on. Any opportunity I had, uh, I used to go down. Uh, hitchhiking was the big deal in the, in the late 60s. So I used to hitchhike an hour and a half down to the Army Parachute Center and make a jump or, or two if I could and hitchhike back and go back to work. And uh, I was just absolutely sold on it. And uh, I mean, really once it got big. Yeah, you had to be if that was your first jump experience and, and you cranked out jump number two on the on the same day. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, so so I had please go ahead, go ahead. So um, I completed my training. Uh, we went straight on a deployment, uh, so I didn't get to jump for a few months. We came back from that deployment, and uh, after most of our deployments, they offer adventure training courses. So 
I applied to do what at that time was 15 jump static line call. You start on the static line, then three seconds, five seconds, 10 seconds. So I did, did that and uh, I came top of that course, um, carried on uh, skydiving. Uh, I went to the Army Parachute Championships as a novice. And there I met the most lovely lady called Jackie Smith, who joined the Red Devils with me a couple of years later and became world champion. She was the first person ever to score 10 dead centers in uh, 1978. Wow. Uh, and it's still a dear, dear friend of mine. Um, I mean, so that, for that, that, we, that itself is spectacular. But you, I mean, to, to become a member of the Red Devils again so early in your career, I mean, even as an American that started jumping dramatically later and in California of all play or Nevada and California, the red devils were a team that I was aware of immediately. Mm -hmm. That was, uh, I made two tours on the red devils. The first one was three years. The second one was two years. And that first three years with no responsibility other than performing to the highest standard I could and then uh, going around the world demonstrating and competing was just the best time of my whole life. But to get to, to that point, to get to that point, I had been sent on the, uh, the French military uh, freefall course in Pau in southern France. Now, that was a wonderful course. And... They were all legionnaires on the course. And, of course, the legionnaires, they're like this tall. And there was me and my friend who were six feet tall. And the legionnaires had this very slow march, and they sing while they march. So I could make phonetic noises like the songs, but my friend couldn't. So we kept having to empty water bottles and do 50 press-ups and run to the top of a hill and come back. So, But, but that was a great course. Sure. The great thing about that course is that I came top of that course and the commander knew the team commander of the Red Devils and wrote to him and said, you need to have a look at this guy, Milne. So in 1972, um, I was sent for tryouts with the Red Devils. Now, because I'd been deployed abroad, I, I wasn't known to anybody. Most people who join the team are, are kind of within the area and the guys see them and they think he'll be a good guy and he'll be a good guy. So I turn up and everyone's saying, Who, who's this guy, Milne? Um, nobody knew me. What caused a bit of a problem is I didn't only go on tryouts for the team, but I went on tryouts for the competition team and competition at that time was style and accuracy. Mm. So... People were saying to me, look, we've been here for two years and we've been training to do this and you've just walked into it. And I said, well, as they drop people off, I've no doubt I'll get dropped off, but I'll, I'll just try my best while I'm here. Hmm. So there were eight of us to be and four were going to be left. And the seventh one dropped off and the sixth one dropped off and the fifth one dropped off and the new canopies, French papillons arrived and I got one of them. And the next thing, I'm on the competition team and we're going around the world competing and I just couldn't, you know, I, I kept pinching myself. For sure. And the criticism ended because when we went to the national championships that year, we set all new records for uh, particularly accuracy. Um so no one criticized me being the new boy after that. I was going to say, winning for the team pretty much ends the criticism, right? I'm, I'm, I've, I'd imagine there was a fair amount of shit that you got prior to that. But if you start stomping the center for them, that's the end of that. 
So then we had round parachutes and um, we carried on with them. At the end of my first year, we went to train with the Golden Knights in, uh, in Fort Bragg. And uh, I and another guy were left behind. So we were there for six weeks uh, during the time of their tryouts. And that, once again, was the most wonderful experience. Mm. So um, Chuck Collingwood and uh, Charlie Hall were two great guys who looked after me and coached me. And, and then I was introduced to Gene Paul Thacker at Rayford. Um, and I started going at weekends down to Rayford to jump with Gene Paul. Um, so things got better and better. My second year of competition, I was runner-up at the uh, Army Championships to, to one of our own guys, who, who was the terrific guy, Sooty Standring. Mm. And he then left the Army. And uh, for nine years after that, I was the Army champion. And for That's five a- years, I was the national champion. And I had regular trips to Fort Bragg to train with the Knights and, and to Rayford to train with Gene Paul Thacker. And that really got me into world standings. and, and um, Wonderful experience. I mean, that's pretty spectacular, right? Uh, to to go and basically be recommended by a, a foreign team to try out for your national team, have a bit of uh, uh, an abrasive start to that, and then end up at the top of the pyramid. That's quite a quick ascent and an amazing journey. It was just wonderful. And these guys were so good to me. And then I was then involved in coaching the new guys who came around and, and, um, and I really enjoy coaching. So I had a 10 year international competition. I was saying that I, I did two tours on the Red Devils, but even when I was back with my regiment, they gave me time off in the summer to go to the army championships and the national championships and then an alternative years to the world championships. So I was British team captain for five world championships. And that's, um, that's amazing. And- yeah, that was wonderful. Great now, experience. Now, let me ask, when you when you first got started on all this, what did your family think about uh, you deciding that not only you did you want to go into the military at a time when being in the military, when Vietnam is going crazy, is probably not the most popular thing in the world to do, A, and B, that you wanted to jump out of airplanes when it was decidedly a not safe thing to do? <laughs> The, the comments from family were, were incredible. But my mother, bless cotton socks, she said, grab hold of these opportunities with both hands, get out there and do the very best that you can. And, uh, and I've tried to follow that. I mean, that's that's uh, some amazing advice, not just from a mom in general, but especially for a mom in that time frame to tell her son, go for it. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I loved it. So, so after ten years, please after go ten years of I um I, I as well as pursuing my skydiving, I wanted to go as far as I could in my military career. So I went back to my regiment. Um, I was involved in in um, lots of tours in the desert and lots of tours in the jungle. Um, but every time we went anywhere. The parachute regiment had their own helicopters, uh, scout helicopters, which was a four-place helicopter. And various commanding officers were always so supportive of me. And at the end of a hard four or five weeks and whatever we were doing, they would say, Sergeant Major, crack on. Get get these helicopters, get the boys jumping. And, and um, so it just continued ev- everywhere we went. I mean, it, it I finished all... completely. 
I was going to say, it almost sounds like you just had a, a um, an angel on your shoulder kind of guiding your way because, I mean, wow, what a path. If ever the good Lord opened the doors. <laughs> we, haven't even come to, we haven't even come to the best bits yet, but Please let's take going. it in stages. Yeah, yeah. So back in my regiment and uh, we're jumping away and I'm training people and I was training the new guys to go to the Red Devils. So that that was great. And that, that left me with the most wonderful group of supportive friends who are all retired now and all who say, thank you for looking after me as a youngster. and Thank you for doing this for me. And that's the greatest blessing in, in all that I have. So when I finished competing, I wanted to be the best chief instructor I could be. Mm. So I worked hard at that. At this time, we were into square parachutes for... for um, I mean, I was twice accuracy champion on round parachutes. <laughs> I made 1,270 1, jumps on round parachutes before we went to squares. Man. The Stratostar was my first competition square, 1976. And then the Strato Cloud came along. And, uh, and after that, I jumped the parafoil, wonderful canopy. So the experienced people were using square canopies. But that, that time in the UK... Um, we were still using round canopies for students. So I, I um, my last two years in the military, I got the job of chief instructor of the Joint Service Parachute Center on the wonderful island of Cyprus. You know Cyprus? Oh, it's just yeah. a wonderful place. It was my last two years. My kids were small at primary school. We had a house on the beach. <laughs> I converted the round parachutes to square parachutes. I started the AFF school there, realized that that's all I wanted to do in the future. And um, and things have just taken off from there. I mean, there's a there's a, a, a particular joy and a particular satisfaction in instruction, especially in something like skydiving that can be such an intense and a rewarding experience that to see that light bulb come on for a student just can't be you can't explain it to someone that's not seen it you know people say to me that the number of students that you've trained over the years which is in the thousands they must be all the same to you i said no everyone is different and when i train new instructors i say to them it's not a fixed format you have to look into that person's eyes and find what it takes to work for that person and that person and that person and it's not the same for everyone and that's the skill of being a high quality instructor. Well, and that's what I was about to say is, is especially with the amount of experience you've got, you must have honed just such an amazing intuition in regard to students and what they need. And people underestimate how valuable being able to read another person is in your line of work. I'll tell you a funny story. Last summer, I trained 20 dancers who worked on the film with Tom Cruise and they'd been out for a night out and Tom Cruise said they were asking him questions about skydiving and he said uh, do any of you want to learn to skydive and 20 of them put their hands up so I got contacted I mean I've never met Tom um, I got contacted by his personal assistant and I'm training these dancers the funny thing addition to that is my son was the safety coordinator for the skydiving uh, 
parts of the film, which he was doing at the same time. And Tom didn't know that we were father and son. But that's another story. That's spectacular. So I'm, I'm working with these dancers and they are so supple. I mean, little girls of 130 pounds, we didn't have to put weight belts on them. Their arch was so great. They were like <laughs> shuttlecocks. We couldn't put them one stable. But in the aircraft, in the aircraft with two of the girls on their first solo dive exit, which is always a little bit more nervous, and it was in the evening for both of them. And I like to sit beside my students so that I can see their eyes, so I can tell what's going on with them. And I could see they were both very frightened. This is on different jumps. And I held their hands and said, just think, when you go into a big show, you're standing behind the stage, waiting for the curtains to open, waiting for the music to start, and you can't think what to do. But the minute the music starts and the curtains open and you step out there, you just dance as you have been trained to do. And they looked at me kind of funny. And both of them did extremely well. So we okay. went for a meal that night. We're having, we're having a drink. And the girl said to me, how do you know that stuff? And I said, it's just what you learn from being around a long time. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I've had a number of different students that were having a difficult time in one way or another on AFF. And you you learn to, tie, to try and shift your focus in a way that makes them more comfortable. Same with tandem students. I mean, I can't count how many tandem students that I had to find out what way was best to make them comfortable to not only make the experience safer, but more enjoyable. So absolutely. And as a quick side note, it's kind of funny. You said your son was working with Tom Cruise on the film. Well, when they did the jumps um, that they eventually CGI'd over Paris, I was actually the otter pilot for him. So I may have met your son. <laughs> well, terrific. Yeah, uh, it's a small world. I used to be Scotty Milne. Now everywhere I go, I'm Ellie Milne's dad. So uh, that's just a <laughs> wonderful way that things should be. And, and another funny story, I took a group to Elsinore, which was is a regular. Mm. And uh, we it's a long flight and a long way to get there. And we get there at 10 o'clock at night and we check into the hotel. And I said to everyone, put your bags in the room come back to the bar, we'll have a drink, and then we'll go to bed. So as they went to the, the rooms, the, the receptionist said, Scotty, there's a big British group in the bar. Okay. So when I went into the bar with my group, the, the lights were low, and you know I, I couldn't see who, who it was. So I'm standing at the bar, and I hear this voice behind me say, that's Sally Milne's dad. So 6,000 miles away. <laughs> I love it. It is funny, I right? I mean... It's a it's a big world, but it's an awfully small community. And it I think yeah. with skydiving, it's it's one degree of separation. It's not whether or not I know you, but I know a dozen people that do. Yeah. It's a, yeah. that's actually I, one I of the that. uh, that's one of the things that made the podcast so easy to get off the ground was if I didn't know you, I know a half a dozen people that do. So it's just a matter of calling the right people. <laughs> so the Dubai, the Dubai story is interesting. You know, we, we um, in, in the late 70s, a friend of mine came out of the SAS and uh, uh, went to work in Dubai, and he formed the first parachute team, mm. and they were doing displays. And uh, did you, you know Muhammad Yusuf? You were there for 10 years. You I absolutely know Muhammad know Yusuf. Muhammad Yusuf, you bet. I trained train Muhammad Yusuf. Uh, <laughs> And Ali Nasser and, and the, you know, all those guys. That, that was a wonderful experience. Mm. He was 
my home producer was very good at looking after me. So my friend Pete Sherman was out there running the team and they, they wanted to have a competition team. So I was invited out uh, to help. So we went out with the army team. Uh, we were there for two months. We had a really good time. Everything was going fantastic. And then each year after that, I did five years, three months at a time, when I was sent individually. They said, we, we want Milne to come back. Mm. So, um, and I loved working with the guys. You know, there's particular challenges working with Arabs, and, and I enjoy the challenge, and I enjoy making it work. And sure. made them Arab champions. Um, you know, it's, it was funny that you brought up uh, Muhammad Yusuf because I had a conversation with him maybe three or four years after I got there, and he was telling me his origins in skydiving, and I believe it was in either the late 70s or the early 80s, he was jumping in Northern California, where I'm from. Uh, so long before I had ever thought about flying a plane or jumping out of one, Muhammad Yusuf was less than an hour away from me. And cut to all these years later, I'm, you know, flying one of the Twin Otters that he's managing. So it was, again, a very small world. Wonderful. Wonderful yeah. So now let me ask that, you. That oh, please go ahead. Please go ahead. At that time in the 70s, where the Palm is and where the Burj Al Arab Hotel is, there was nothing there. <laughs> and I was stay in a hotel that's been knocked down called the Metropolitan Hotel. And I used to run up that beach every day. I did my physical training and there was nothing on it. Uh, and you go back and find find what it is now. And it's just fantastic. Well, the, that was when the drop zone was located in Ras Al-Khaimah, right? Yes. Yeah. So Ras Al-Khaimah was famous uh, for me in Dubai because at least for the first few years, that was the only liquor store you could get booze. So everyone would drive from downtown Dubai to Ras Al-Khaimah to the liquor store and past where the drop zone used Umo to be. Gwen. Yeah. Umo Umo Gwen. Gwen. That's, that's, Umo. that's where we jumped. That's right. That's right. Um, oh, not a Ras Al-Khaimah, but Umo Gwen, yes. But that wasn't with the Dubai team that, uh, for us. Um, all the stuff with the Dubai team was in uh, was from helicopters and and G Treble too and and uh, that they had at the time nice. um, out in the desert. And in fact, we were, we were operating so close to Dubai that I got sent for by air traffic control and, and South African wonderful guy. And he said, um, "We got a problem, Mr. Mel. So what's the problem?" He said, "This circle on the map is our controlled airspace, and you are causing a problem." You need to go outside the controlled airspace. I said, okay, mark me on the map where it is. And I drove up the Alain Road until we got outside. And the first salt flats was marked on the map as Rawaya. And I said, this is now Rawaya drop zone. Now that is where the rugby stadium is on the way to the to the to the um desert DZ. Yes. That's that was is Rawaya. Um, and and you're the one that picked it. That's awesome. <laughs> now, going back to Omar Gwain, what happened in Omar Gwain was um, Russian Hercules equivalent, AM-12, AM-4, yes. AM-26, uh, worked for the United Nations in Africa in famine relief, and they came every January to Abu Dhabi for annual services. So what we would do is we took about 70 Brits out and about 70 Germans, and we hired these aircraft, and I, I ran the AFF program. And uh, I, I particularly remember on, on one of them, we, um, 
we're putting 70, the Germans were doing 70 wave formations and we put the AFF at the back of them. So they drop the tailgate at the front. I'm at the back with the AFF student. The green light comes on, whoosh, 70 Germans are, are out like that. We walk up to the tailgate, have a look over the edge. Are you ready? Out, in, off we go, all from 15,000 feet. So we had the most wonderful times. I um, bet. We did that for a, quite a lot of years. Um, that's Again, that's absolutely spectacular. Now, actually, I, I had a question from from a, a topic just a bit earlier. When you introduced AFF uh, to the military, were they resistant uh, to it? Because AFF was pretty controversial for quite a long time. We're British. We've got <laughs> rules for everything. Change is like plucking chickens' teeth. So it was <laughs> it was really quite difficult, uh, and and. It's accepted, of course, it's well accepted now, but but any change takes such a long time. Mm. Uh, I'm really pleased. And one of the reasons I started my own school, I didn't want to work for other people. I had the vision of where what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be. And I'm going around the world watching the best practice at Deland in Florida, Zephyr Hills, uh, Elsinore, Paris Valley, um, everywhere that we went. And I'm always looking to see how we can improve things. So I come back with all these changes and, and it's this, we've always done it this way. I said, yes, we want an empire wearing red tunics and firing muskets, but life has moved on. <laughs> and after some work, we're, we're able to get to where we need to be. And, and, uh, For sure. and that's good. Now, when you started your own business, did you was the business plan immediately that you're going to recruit students locally and then take them abroad? Or did that just start to change because the weather is so prohibitive in the UK? Well, it's a funny thing. I finished in the army in 1992. And my wife and I are both Scottish. And we had this overpowering urge to move back to Scotland, which is the most wonderful country. But it's not great for skydiving. <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile where I wanted to live with what I wanted to do. So as soon as I got out of the army, my phone never stopped ringing. Can you come and help us here? Can you come and help us there? So I'm working away and, and I had two problems. One of them was some of the equipment wasn't the standard that I was used to working with. And secondly, students from centers were locking on to me and can we come away with you? And I said, I can't do that. That's professional suicide. Mm. But the first couple of guys said to me, we, we sat on a drop zone for a week with bad weather and said, do you not know anywhere with sunshine? And I said, yeah, on the Red Devils, we used to go to uh, Ampuria Bravo in, in Spain and train. Will you take us there? Okay. So I took the first couple of guys there. Now you've got to remember in 1992, AFF was not the main event. AFF was quite small, particularly in the UK. So the first guys come back and go to the club and say, look what we've done in a week or 10 days, and we've got licenses, and we can do this, and we can do that. So the next two want to come, and the next two want to come. And the doors just opened like this. And I have been overrun for years and years, and it's wonderful. Oh, I bet. I mean, um, especially I, I don't I don't know how many uh, Brits and, and citizens of the UK that I've had on the podcast now that all say the same thing. I started 
And the only reason I'm a skydiver now is because the community was awesome. And I had a great time sitting on the ground, watching it pissing down rain. And finally, after this many years or that many years, I got enough jumps in that I was qualified to go abroad. And that's where my career started. Uh, so I've heard it a million times that, yeah, the UK is a great place as a skydiving community. It's just a shit place to jump when the weather goes bad. When it's good, it's wonderful. Yeah. But as I've said earlier, we need consistency to get the license. It doesn't matter if you miss days once you're qualified, but you need the consistency to get that license. Sure. Well, and it's it's quite a popular sport, really, in the UK. I mean, it's in university programs and people are, are joining the skydiving clubs and colleges and much more so than the United States for the longest time where everybody comes to skydive. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I think that, that, that I think skydiving in general is growing and we've got as long as we are going forward, there's no standing still, and I keep telling people that, but we've got wingsuiting and we've got um, free fly, we've got head down, we've got sit fly, we've got all kinds of things. As long as we're going forward, the sport will continue to grow. Sure. Safety and I mean, aspect. it's such an attractive sport in, in general, but um, the advent of social media and everyone being able to see now firsthand what we're doing when it used to be you'd see the x games and you'd have no idea what was going on it just kind of looked cool but now you're seeing every aspect of the sport broken down in video after video after video on youtube and in social media and it really has drawn a lot of people in that being said um one of the main reasons that i approached you is i continued to see your posts on the beginner skydiving forum um which are fantastic posts because it's student after student after student that's you know acing their landings and having an amazing course and an amazing time and being able to see it in a forum with goodness i think it's 55,000 members on that uh, group now that are all just bitten by this skydiving you know bug and it's amazing to see it is it's, I, I'm still amazed when I meet people who say, um, oh, we didn't have video on my course. And even at the beginning, on EFF, before we had small cameras, I refused to train people without video. So we had a separate cameraman, you know, with the old big cameras on the helmets. Sure. Um, and now, and I say, I give my guys their videos, I give them all the stills that you see uh, and I say, get out there and post them as widely as you can to all your friends. And that's where my business comes from. And the joke is that each student is responsible for recruiting two more. And that's the way it works. You look yes. after people. They realize, because no matter where we go, all student groups speak to each other. And they come to me at night and they say, they're not doing the same as us. And they can't do what we're, what we're doing. And I said, well, we all do it differently. We don't have to do it the same way. As long as the job is done and everything, all the objectives are achieved, it doesn't matter how you do them. So don't be too cocky and, and um, but we're doing well. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, skydiving is, especially with newer skydivers, it is such an infectious sport um, because whether you were nervous or not, whether you did a great job or not, you land from that jump and at the end of the evening, you can't help but just be 
thrilled with what's going on and the natural thing to want to do is to share the hell out of it and if you're not sitting in a bar drinking a beer sharing it then you're online sharing it and it just snowballs which obviously i mean you've been in it for 50 some odd years going hardcore so <laughs> you know we, we go out every night for a meal and we sit with a meal and a couple of glasses of wine or beer and i look around the table and i hear them pouring out their experience and and how they encourage each other and so many of our groups like what they see they keep coming back so it's not only the aff group but we've got groups that we've trained from previous trips come back on a second or subsequent trip and they are terrific encouragement because they have sat in that seat sometimes only weeks before and say look this is how i felt this is how I got over it. And you're doing great. And that encouragement, I just find wonderful. It really is. I mean, that's, that's again, one of the greatest things about that group is you, as an older skydiver myself and, and as an OG yourself, um, you get that excitement back, right? Because you, you feed off of that energy and that vibe. And I'll read these posts and and they're so excited about things that you and I have forgotten about way back when. And it takes you back immediately and you go, oh, shit, I remember exactly what that was like and how I felt. And one of my biggest joys with this podcast is talking to people that have been there, done that, and tell the stories of when they were scared to death and when they weren't sure if they were going to learn this skill or that skill, but they did. And now they're world champions and they're amazing in, in every field. And you love hearing those stories and it takes you back every time. So that's one of the reasons still my favorite way to skydive is to take a tandem because I love feeling that energy that they just radiate. You know what I get every trip now? For example, on the last trip, I'm sitting with my gear on on the bench, my students next to me, we're waiting to get in the aircraft. And a German gentleman came and sat beside me and he said, how are you? I said, very good. How are you? He said, your knees? How are your knees? I said, my knees are good. No fluid, no retention. No, nothing at all. Your ankles? No, nothing at all. Uh, I said, 11 years ago, I had a double hip replacement, uh, and I've done over 2,000 jumps with the new hips. And uh, he said, may I ask how old you are? And I said, I'm 70 years old. And he stood up and shook my hand. He said, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I watch you work, and that's most impressive. <laughs> that's fantastic that's amazing yeah i mean mean, please go ahead go ahead the i want to be an advertisement for the older guy because when i started i was the youngest red devil i was the youngest guy in britain to make a thousand jumps i was the youngest national champion and army champion and i'm gonna keep going for a long time because i'm the oldest to do it I mean, this is a sport. You don't give up skydiving because you get old. You get old because you give up skydiving. Absolutely. Well, and and this is honestly one of the few sports that I can think of that as long as you are physically able, you can keep right on doing it. Now, if you're playing football or something along those lines – those knees are going to give out long before a skydiver is going to give out. But I mean, take Lou Sanborn, for instance, D1. I mean, jumping into his 80s and beyond, there's no real age limit to skydiving as long as you take care of yourself. But that actually brings up a great question. What tips can you give to people for longevity in the sport? I mean, you don't continue to jump as long as you have without knowing how to take care of yourself. 
Well, I eat well. Uh, I don't drink a great deal. I don't smoke. I exercise every day. I live in the Highlands in Scotland in a little village on the most beautiful loch. You would call it a lake. Yep. Uh, I'm on the hill every day that I'm at home. Um, just keep pumping out and keep keep the body moving. That's, I mean, honestly, that's the best advice ever. And getting out to the drop zone and doing exactly that. I mean, when your motivation is to want to stay healthy so that you can continue to jump out of airplanes, slogging that rig on your back and climbing up the steps to the airplane and cranking out a nice jump is a great way to stay in shape. So usually towards... Please go ahead. I find that, uh, you know, we count paces and we try to make at least 10,000 paces a day. A normal day working on the drop zone is between 12 and 14,000 paces. So that's a good good uh, level. And yeah. where we are in the will, it depends where we're going to eat at night. But that can be another four or 5,000 paces walking out and walking back. And um, so it keeps you fit. It keeps you going. I was going to say, you don't seem to be showing any signs of slowing down. Absolutely not. <laughs> so now, usually towards the the end of the podcast, I ask people uh, for advice and tips for a couple of different groups of people. Um, the first one is people either just getting into skydiving or those thinking about skydiving. What advice would you have to them? And for jumpers that have been doing it for a while and maybe they're getting bored and they feel stagnant and uh, they're wondering if they should continue on. Uh, what advice do you give to those two groups of people? Okay, the first thing is, for new people, search carefully uh, to decide where you're going to go. Look around at all the forums for the comments. Um, I've a number of times have been abroad when someone's come to me and said, are you Scott Emil? Yeah, we were going to come to you, but this guy was 50 pounds cheaper and, and we're not very happy with what's going on. I said, well, I can't do anything about that now. You need, you've made your bed. You need to lie in it. Uh, yeah. So search carefully for where you for where you go um the wind tunnel i think is the most wonderful training device and my son's answer to the question how much wind tunnel time should you do and his answer is you can never do too much wind tunnel time. <laughs> um, it's a lot of coaching in fact it's just back from finland uh been been in the wind tunnel up there oh nice um um and for jumpers who are getting bored, find something else. And if you can find two or three of your, your contemporaries, and what I like to do at the end of a trip is get a couple of people together who I've jumped with, who I've trained, and brought through the formation skydiving, because that's my thing is formations. If they want to do head down or you know they go off elsewhere, get them together and show them how to make different exits and show them how to make different different simple formations and once again you see the enthusiasm just wow that was great and it's not that difficult absolutely um, so that's my now uh, actually that brings up another great question in all your years now of instructing have you lost count of how many of your former students are now instructors and competitors and champions in their own right loads and loads it's um, <laughs> it's it's such thrill for me to see them come back on instructor's courses. Um, it, it has to be. I, I, it's just absolutely. And, and um, 
to watch them progress, to see the change in their lives. And we've, we've had people who've had all sorts of problems in their lives, and this takes them away from those problems. It gives them a focus on something positive. They're within a community where they're being looked after. One of the great things for me is I've trained many young ladies and they feel safe and comfortable. And that is so important to mm. me. And they keep coming back because they know they're going to be looked after. There's not going to be any problems. Um, well, I, yeah. it, it's our job as instructors to look around and see these things. I uh, I just uh, I've had a, a few women on the the podcast recently that have uh, uh, have really highlighted the accomplishments of a lot of the amazing female uh, skydivers in the sport and uh, um, still the low numbers um, female to male percentage wise. So it's fantastic to know that there are instructors out there that are taking good care to try and bring more into the sport. I mean. I personally have been um, dominated by female skydivers my entire career. They've been dramatically better than I ever could have been for the longest time. So to know that bringing more and more into the sport is just spectacular and knowing that they're being well taken care of is a very important thing. Absolutely. And the British ladies team have just won the four-way world champion mm. championships and they're all training around us. And I point my girls to say, you could be in this group in a couple of years' time, and they, they'll come over and speak. They are the most encouraging, positive group of, of women. Awesome. And, um, that's what we're looking for. We're all working together. Well, I mean, the same aim. at the end of the day, we just want more people to play with, right? I mean, we want more people to go out and jump with in a bigger community. I mean, uh, you much more than me. There's not a country in the world that uh, I can't go to now that I don't more than likely have a sofa that I can sleep on because I know a skydiver or I know a friend of a skydiver. And it's a it's a hell of a thing. Interesting story there. In Please. Seville, last year, they had a, a new uh, rigger arrived wonderful guy, uh, quality FAI rigger. And uh, I was introduced to him and I said, where do you come from? He said, Bulgaria. I said, where about in Bulgaria? He said, Kazanlak. I said, I won a world championship medal in Kazanlak. He said, I know. I was one of the schoolboys that was taken in a bus to the medal presentation. <laughs> Small oh. world. That's fantastic. I mean, it really, it does, it makes the world a much smaller place in a, in a wonderful way. It really does. So uh, we all need to work. We all need to help each other. Absolutely. And well, and it's nice to know that people are out there being taken care of. That's one of the great things. I keep referencing the beginner skydiving forum. That's one of the things that I love to see there is how much interest there still is and how much encouragement on many different levels there are to those that are thinking about jumping or maybe having a hard time with it. In fact, just this evening, I saw a post of a, a, a young guy that said uh, he was trying to shake his nickname, which was the puke guy. Uh, and my response was, yeah, my response was just keep jumping. I've been nicknamed princess for 27 years. Be happy with the puke guy and keep jumping. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, great. so, Hey, as we wrap things up, I want you to tell me uh, what your business name is, how people get in contact with you, how they can sign up for your courses, or even just find out where you're at and come out and shake your hand and make a jump. That happens a lot, and I'm delighted with that. People say, I didn't know if I could shake your hand. I didn't know if you would speak to me. We're all skydivers. Mm. It doesn't matter if you're on the first jump or a 20,000 jump. We're mm. all skydivers. We're here to help each other. There's my hand. 
There's my <laughs> friendship. Anything I can do for you, I'll do for you. Nice. Okay. My school is called Active Skydiving. My website is activeskydiving.com. But if you Google Scotty Milne, it comes up uh, and you can find anything you want from that. Nice. Nice. Yeah. There's a bit of a history on uh, on Google with you. I've pulled it up. <laughs> Scotty, I'll tell you what, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time this evening to sit down and talk to me. I've been wanting to sit and talk to you. I think we talked to, about a year ago to try and set this up. So I'm really happy we made it happen. I, I definitely appreciate the time and everything that you do for the sport. Thank you, sir. I'm delighted to speak to you. All right. Take care, Scotty. And there you have it. Another episode of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void brought to you as always by, and say it with me, fuck yeah, NZ Aerosports. Head to nzaerosports.com. By Pussfoot. That's right. Head to Pussfoot.com, the extreme sports collective, and check out everything they've got to offer. By SummitParachuteSystems.com. Jarrett Martin and the family cranking out amazing pilot rigs, as well as incredible rigging courses. And now joining the Lunatic team, it's the one and only Tony Suits. You know them, you love them. Head to TonySuit.com. Check out all the amazing standards, as well as the new incredible signature line they've got going on. And as for us, the Lunatic Fringe is now on YouTube. That's right, you're going to have the chance to put faces to the audio by heading to YouTube.com and looking up the Lunatic Fringe Podcast. It's easy. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, check out all the amazing videos from the previous guests that we've had, as well as new and upcoming interviews on video. As always, I am the fucking pilot. Head to thefuckingpilot.net or theprincesspilot.com. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next time around.
Lunatic Fringe would like to welcome Pure Spectrum CBD to the podcast. You're going to want to head to PureSpectrumCBD.com to check out the wide range of THC-free products that they've got, products that both my wife and I have been using and can highly recommend. Use the promo code LUNATIC when you head to PureSpectrumCBD.com. That's LUNATIC at PureSpectrumCBD.com. 